You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud Tipsy Nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome Tipsy Nerds, book lovers, sci-fi and fantasy fans, adult fairy tale lovers, but not like adult. Well, that sounds wrong. Anyway, fairy tales written for adults. That's what I'm looking for. That's the term. I'm Natalie Wright, one of your hosts. With me, as always, is co-host Robin Schofield. Hey, Robin. Hey, Natalie. Great to see you again. Natalie and I see each other on the screen when we talk. So yeah, um, it's one of the best times of every two weeks for us. We don't like foist the video portion, (laughs) the video version on people. So yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> the hijinks, the yeah. us sitting in our pajamas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah. In dark rooms, drinking wine. Um, but anyway, we today are talking about the 1996 show and novel Neverwhere written by Neil Gaiman. Yes. And yeah, so I don't think we've ever talked about, we've talked about a Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett book, Good Omens, but we haven't talked about just something written by Neil Gaiman. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. Glad we are because I think he made the NPR top 100 list a couple times perhaps, or he's got a lot of very famous books. I think he's one of the the most well-known fantasy writers. So it's, I'm glad we're tackling this and Neverwhere yeah. was a fun story. Like you said, it's uh, an adult fairy tale of sorts. You have Richard Mayhew, who's this kind of uh, milk toast bloke from Scotland, um, working yeah. and living in London in sort of this bland job with a bland fiance. And he stumbles upon a woman one evening who has sort of fallen out of what seems to be a brick wall and is bleeding and desperately needs help. And the story sort of begins when he makes the decision to help this woman instead of going to uh, dinner with his fiance and her fancy boss and whatnot. And so by saving this woman, who is sort of this uh, homeless girl from a place known as London Below, he embarks upon this journey where he's sort of sucked into this parallel universe with the underbelly of London that has all of the people who fell through the cracks. Not just uh, what we would consider homeless people, but people who speak to rats, people who are have magical powers of sorts, people who uh, come from ancient points of history. You never really know the ages. So it's just this complete and total topsy-turvy London. And he finds that he cannot actually come back to this world. And so the story sort of goes off from there of his journey to figure out how to find his life and also his journey to help this woman whose name is Dor, the one he helped in the beginning to figure out who killed her family and why. So it's kind of this twofold journey. Yeah. And so we get to go along with Richard Mayhew and see him go from Scottish man to, I don't want to give it away yet. We'll talk about it. It's a great setup. And that's, yeah. So it's kind of like, to me, I thought it was very Wizard of Oz Mm -hmm. meets like Diagon Alley. (laughs) Yeah. 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 A lot of people compare it to Alice in Wonderland. And I definitely could see that where, you know, like he's fallen down into this Mm -hmm, doorway mm -hmm. into this other world, but plot wise, it reminded me a lot of the wizard of Oz and it's definitely the hero's journey. So it definitely follows that kind of, you know, Richard has to find his way to being Mm -hmm. a hero. Uh, He 
you know, to, in order to solve the problems of the story. So. With all those archetypical characters involved. Right. So it's, if you, yeah, if you right. enjoy Wizard of Oz uh, with a Diagon Alley vibe, because you, you know, it's all London and it feels very London right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's a very quintessentially British story, I think, in terms yeah. of like the humor, the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the movie Brazil, which I don't know if, if you've ever seen Robin, but some of our fans, maybe this is an older movie from, I'm guessing the nineties. Okay. Monty Python. I mean, it's kind of like, you yeah. know, it gives you all the feels of that sort of thing. The British. Yeah, I had, I totally felt Terry Pratchett in there. I felt Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like they all are cut from the same cloth in a way. And so if you enjoy that, and I find this, I'm jumping ahead, but just to spit it out before we say what we're drinking, I find it really interesting because it almost has this young adult vibe to it because it's really light and campy and whimsical. But then they're like dropping F-bombs and talking about sex. And it's like, okay, yeah, this isn't young adult. Like you're reminded it's not, but I find some of that campy British humor in writing, especially in fantasy to sort of seem a bit younger, not in a bad way. It just, yeah. Yeah. Has that vibe. Well, what are we drinking today? Let's, let's talk about our beverages before we get too deep into Neverwhere. Robin, uh, what are you drinking today? Yeah. So I went the repulsive route and Natalie went... (laughs) the classy route. So depending on your mood, you can decide, (laughs) although mine is delicious. Um, I named it sewer water. (laughs) A lot of this book takes place in the sewer. And I don't think I've ever read so many descriptions of human feces and stink as I have in this story. So naturally I was like, all right, what's a, what's a thick chocolatey (laughs) brown drink. So, um, I, I, it's, it's good though. It's got vanilla vodka, chocolate liqueur, Irish cream. That sounds Uh, good. If you, yeah, if you want to throw in some bits of garbage and whatnot to make it extra chunky, you know, some chocolate sprinkles, chocolate chips, marshmallows for toilet paper. I don't know. Get creative. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's really tasty. Yeah. What are you drinking? There's a point where I think Richard says, I've got mud in my shoes. And he's like, I hope it's mud. Yeah. (laughs) And Hunter says, Oh, it's mud. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, very cute. Um, well, there is a point where they're with an angel named Islington, and Islington is serving them like an ambrosia wine that's made from the grapes from Atlantis. So, you know, that just struck me as something that sounded actually really good, but Mm -hmm. I decided to make, um, I'm calling it Atlantis nectar. And so it's, um, some honey, which I don't know, for some reason I'm really into lately, like I'm throwing it in everything. Um, so it's honey, gin, natural sweetener. Yeah. You could probably use vodka and then some lemon juice and some orange juice. So that sounds good. Yeah. Nice and fresh and refreshing. I think you can take that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Sounded. I was just like, I, I want to drink that so much. So yeah. And it got them nice and wasted. (laughs) Yeah. Did (laughs) they were true. (laughs) They were flying high for a little bit on the, the, uh, (laughs) the wine they had there that the angels served them. Yeah. Totally. So how do you want to jump into this one? I feel like I have some questions, but I want to save those. Like sometimes we read stuff and I don't necessarily have questions, just discussions, but this one, I have stuff to ask you, but perhaps first I'm just going to ask you, how did you like the book? I think it's a very enjoyable story in terms of, you know, it's lighthearted, you know, there's nothing, although it's dark in a sense, because they're in a sewer and some characters don't make it, but at the same time, it's 
you know, it's very just lighthearted. It's fun. It's whimsical. I mean, I think if you like urban fantasy and if you like, you know, lighthearted stories like that, it definitely has a very YA feel to it. Mm -hmm. It's definitely coming of age. Although he's an adult, he's still kind of like trying to become a man, I guess. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, that's sort of, I think the vein of the story. I think for me personally, I, I'm not really into urban fantasy. Okay. So Mm -hmm. it's just not a genre that I read a lot of. I did enjoy that aspect of the story though, just because maybe it's different from stuff I normally read, but I guess I have a little bit of an issue with stories. It's like, I don't like adult stories with talking animals. Like there's gotta be a really good freaking reason to have a talking animal in an adult fantasy story. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm just not, I'm just not really into that. Some people Mm -hmm. love it. Good. Right. Um, you know, so it's kind of like, I felt a little bit with Neverwhere, like I love Alice in Wonderland. I love Wizard of Oz. I love children's stories a lot. I love, it's a, genre I really enjoy. This is kind of like, it's sort of adult, it's sort of young adult and it's sort of for children and it felt a little bit to me, like it doesn't really know what it is. Yeah. It you didn't know, pick like a lane. Right. Exactly. So it was a mm-hmm. little bit like just not necessarily 1000% my cup of tea. Yeah. Having said that, I definitely enjoyed it. It wasn't like bad. I yeah. just, it's probably not a, a personal preference of mine. Yeah. So that was a really long answer. <laughs> No, I, but it's good. It was a very thorough and solid answer. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it was all good content. So, <laughs> and yeah. what did, what did you think? How did you uh, enjoy yeah, it? I actually enjoyed it a lot in the sense that uh, so much of what we read in these genres is so dense and heavy and which I also love, but it just right. is, it's a labor of love to get through. And right. this is really an easy read. And so it's, it's nice for the senses. There's lots of things to see mm-hmm. as you're reading visually. There's lots of sensory details. The characters are entertaining. Nothing is, this is also a complaint, but not because it's not what it's trying to be there. Nothing is so deep that you have to really struggle through anything. Right. You know, there's a lot of things or once I finished, I was like, huh, I feel like if I wrote this right now, nobody would publish it. <laughs> But it was also really enjoyable. There's also lots of things I took from it that I was like, I would love to write, you know, incorporate stuff like this. Yeah, I think it was fun and campy and enjoyable and light, not an overly deep fantasy. But I think a lot of not all of it, but a lot of Neil Gaiman's writing is that way. It's it's like Stardust and some of these others are are really lovely, but they're not complicated. Right. It's a good thing and a bad thing for me that in this moment it was good. Yeah. A pretty familiar feeling. Um, yes, because he he really pulls a lot from things that already exist. It's On that like, note, yeah, yeah. Did you catch? I, perhaps this was like a shout out, but did you catch the complete and total ripoff of William Gibson's opening line from Neuromancer? Or because maybe not. Uh, but so I had to. I screenshotted this on my. I'm reading it on the Kindle, and I was like, hold on a minute. And I didn't have time to do research, but this is a sentence from Neverwhere. The sky was the perfect untroubled blue of a television screen tuned to a dead channel. And I'm sorry, but that is like one of the most epic opening lines in a science fiction fantasy novel. And so I was, is he giving us, I think, um, Neuromancer. Now now we're madly (sighs) Googling as we speak. Yeah. But I I read that and I was like, hold the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Because in our episode on Neuromancer, we, we had a whole discussion about that. 
Well, and I think I'm certain Neuromancer was earlier than that. 1984. Yeah. So I just, yeah. I was just, I was, perhaps it's a shout out. So this is going to, I'm going to throw this one out to readers. Do you know about this? Do you feel it's a ripoff? The first part of the sentence is different, but tuned to a dead channel is such a specific description. So right. what do you guys know about this? Was it a shout out to William Gibson? Was it a ripoff? How do you feel? Okay. Now I'll pass it back to you. I just had to throw that out there. Oh, that's a really good question. I did not catch that. Um, okay. Interesting. I want to set aside the whole William Gibson thing yeah, for we're a minute. Moving, we're moving on from that. Whole other question. Yeah. But the concept of pulling from known mythologies, from that standpoint, I think that this definitely, you know, fits in that vein of pulling from a lot of different kind of things that we know. Plotline is the Wizard of Oz, and they see the angel, and the right. angel is like the wizard, and says, "Ha ha ha! You have to go do these things before I'll give you the answer that you're looking for," kind of thing, or get you back home because Richard. Mm-hmm. Mayhew is like Dorothy trying to get back home again. Um, Mm -hmm. So all that feels familiar. And so it can be really comforting, I think, to read a story like, so it's kind of like fun to dip into something that you don't have to think too hard about. I agree. But don't expect anything super original here. You know, mm -hmm. that's going to like Black Sun or like the fifth season that we've read this season, you know, where people are really breaking new ground in, in fantasy. This is not that. Yeah. I do appreciate, and I'm, I'll turn this into a question too, how I liked that he took this concept of the people who fall through the cracks in the unseen and, and made them into dimensional people who had purpose and focus and mission and goals instead of just somebody sitting on the side of the road begging for money there was this whole world he created around them and i thought that was really that was really nice and special and interesting and for you what what were like the biggest messages of this book or what was he trying to say or like which of the things that he did dive a little deeper into as far as topics or themes did you enjoy or appreciate i'm not sure i was thinking um wow uh i mean i maybe i'm not drunk enough to answer that question Hmm. you can always say uh pass (laughs) yeah i appreciate a lot of what what he was trying to do in terms of that Mm -hmm. i to me it didn't really go very deeply because it's more like concept than story, Mm -hmm. which, you know, some people really like, Mm -hmm. like, just give me a concept, give it to me in the fewest word possible and I'll fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. And so this is that kind of story for me where I don't know that it emotionally resonated enough for me to like sit and think about it a whole lot. Okay. Fair. But I I mean, I agree. I do appreciate, but I guess I would say too, this is 1996 when he's writing this and mm-hmm. urban fantasy, while it wasn't completely new, it's not as developed as it is like say today. And right. I feel like there are probably a good 20 urban fantasy books that people who read the genre would probably point out that are probably done in a Better. more developed way mm-hmm, than this mm-hmm. one. So, you know, it's, it's starting to age up a little bit. I think this story. Sure. Yeah. And I think probably part of why it feels that way is this was created first as a TV miniseries and he wrote the book from the the miniseries and the screenplay. So I think it, it totally probably what you felt and I felt a bit with it was that you could see that because it was thin in certain ways. So you had the dialogue and you had the characters, but you didn't have a huge world building and description. It felt like take the screenplay and flesh it out a bit. Right. Character motivation. It's sort of like everything is more of a stereotype 
and this is Neil Gaiman's first novel. And it's very first novel-esque in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that concept of, hey, let's throw in this and let's throw in that and let's throw in that. And he's got all these ideas floating around that probably in later writing, he pulls mm-hmm. off in a more composed way or something more edited, yeah. you know, like you don't have to keep all those first thoughts or first yeah. ideas or I, the I stereotype had... that comes to mind. You can flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah. So... I had written down some things that tie into that. I, I hadn't formulated the thought to be what you just said. So thank you for saying that so that what I say makes sense. (laughs) But yeah, it felt there was a lot of characters in this that felt like they didn't necessarily need to be there and scenes where you're like, there was a woman in the, the beginning who crosses the bridge with him. Her name is Anesthesia and she disappears and he, he worries about her the thing, but it didn't really play a role. And then the, the character Lamia, who was the velvet who at the end, you know, tries to suck his life. And then it was interesting, but you're just like, that didn't really do anything for the story and sort of actually distracted me from the actual plot that was happening. Just because you think I'm going to put a vampire-like character in here. Right. And then nobody edited the vampire character out, even though she had nothing to do with anything. And so I I felt that way a, a bit with some of the characters too. I feel like you could do a whole conversation about the women in this story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and it's yes. intriguing to think about what they represent. Yeah, because there's a lot of them. We have there. this strident woman who's cow, you know, cowing him into submission. That's his fiance, who he escapes yeah. by helping another woman because she's like, oh, just leave it. You know, just leave that girl. What are you doing? You're yeah. supposed to be paying attention to me. Meh. I'm giving her that voice because that's how she sounds in my yeah. head, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, he's got the damsel in distress. So she's an archetype. Um, yeah. Door is the damsel. And so he's got to help her. And then mm-hmm. you have the blood sucking woman. So mm-hmm. it's just interesting. Then you have Hunter. Oh, and then uh, anesthesia. So he's got a lot of the characters are women, but just mm-hmm. it's interesting. Like mm-hmm. what? What did they really represent? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you're right. You could have a whole conversation on that. <laughs> and it just a door, this main character who helps is named door because she comes from this family who have these magical powers. It seems where they can create doors out of nothing or open doors. Her father was Lord Portico. Her brother is arch. So all names in that way. And one thing I was disappointed about with this book is their family and family lineage sounds super cool and interesting. And there's definitely a fantasy story in that, but you never really got into who they are or where they came from or really what their purpose was. Like her father, her whole family was murdered before the book starts. And it sort of opens with that. And her father was working to unite London underground, but it doesn't even tell you what that means or like what, why he wanted to unite it or what was wrong with it or how he was going to use these cool powers he have has to do that. And, and even when you find out why he was killed, it doesn't actually make sense really for why he and his family had to die. So there was a lot of, I don't know if they were plot holes or just mismanaged threads, it felt. And I could suspend. Okay. Thank you. I could suspend (laughs) belief a bit, but I I just felt like there was so much more that I wanted. And so I, I think this is tying back to the fact that it was a screenplay, a beefed out screenplay. Right. Yeah, I for me that was a big miss was not having more of Doris family and the magic of that and the fantasy of that and yeah. Right. I think what you were saying earlier we could tie back into that. It's almost like the more interesting part of the story is 
not Richard, <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. Richard's story isn't terribly exciting. And at the beginning, you see Richard in a job and he like gets the job done. He's really reliable. People can like rely on Richard to do the job mm -hmm. and his fiance, he's like, kind of like just doing what she tells him. He's not really making decisions of his own, but I guess I would say I'm not really seeing where there's anything really bad with his life. He sounds like an everyday kind of bloke to me living yeah. like a life that most everybody lives, which is <laughs> You That's know, a little like, boring, but fine. Right. Like we go to work and we do our job and, you know, yeah, his fiance sounds like a real kind of strident bitch, but okay. That's also probably normal for many people. <laughs> yes. Whether you are that character or people live with that character, but you know, and it's not like she's abusing him. No, I mean, she's telling him to put a jacket on. She's telling him to be on time. Right. You know? It's not like horrendous. Uh, right. Bitchiness. It's just right. There's nothing bad. about his life that feels uh, he's really got to fix this. You know what I mean? He, it, it, his mm -hmm. life doesn't seem like it really needs fixed. And that mm -hmm. was a little bit of an issue for me because it's like, I don't feel any emotional connection to Richard Mayhew. He's got great one-liners, you know, he's got great quips. Mm -hmm. He's got some funny yeah. dialogue and stuff, but he's not like, we really care about what happens to Richard. Some of the right. other characters like door, there's a lot there that could be worked with, but it never yeah. was really fleshed out. But the actual London underground, I think is probably something that people really like the story for, because mm -hmm. that's intriguing. That's fun. That's mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, Harrods is this floating market, you know, and it, the market changes. It's like the floating market, but it goes from place to place and you never know where it's going to be. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, just like a fun detail, the Earl court. And it's like, yeah the train or the subway, the underground, you know, transportation stops and it's Earl court. And it's like, there's an actual Earl with holding an court. actual holding court. It's yeah. funny. It's, you know, again, it's very like Monty Python, Terry Pratchett-esque. Yeah. And he did um, that with a lot of real places in London and made right. them literal. And that right. was fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that like all of that is really fun. He's got a great knack of, of doing things like that and the concepts, but in terms of like actual story, Mm -hmm. That's where it starts to, you know, it's not, yeah. there's not a lot to sink your teeth into here or get mm -hmm. emotionally attached about mm -hmm. like if characters die and you're like, okay, well, moving on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not yeah, at all. Like, I, I think that's a fair point. Now I have another question. This is, I'm, I'm it's hard not to blur Neil, pra Neil Pratchett, Neil Gaiman yep. and Terry Pratchett sometimes. And so, so this question is going to blur that a little bit, but so Neil Gaiman seems to have like a decent fascination with religion and angels because, you know, this book at the center of it is this angel who has this task that needs to be completed, um, which had some good omens vibes for me. I kept thinking about the angels there. And then I thought about small gods by Terry Pratchett and I was like, nope, that's not Neil Gaiman. But <laughs> so, right. but it was interesting. I read that Neil Gaiman is actually an atheist and grew up like in a Jewish and Scientology background. So all kinds of interesting stuff, but do you, have you come across more about like why he's interested in, in centers angels and religion at so much of his, of his story? I, or I haven't heard um, okay. any commentary on that. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe yeah. just curious, maybe trying to understand it or perhaps. Yeah. Or it's he, or it's maybe a, as a writer taking something that so many people believe in already that is, he sees as fiction and fantasy and and playing with something that is uh, like already 
a story and already a character that a lot of people are, are like, yes, of course, angels. Maybe that makes it more palatable for some people to read about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, I, my guess is that he, if he's an atheist, my guess is that he would view angels the same way he would view Thor and Zeus. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They're all mythologies to be plumbed yeah. for their archetypal art for the archetypes and for the, the story. Yeah. So I think you're onto something there, I would yeah, say. Just, yeah, just curious. In another, I'm going to pass it off to listeners too. Yeah. If you have ideas of what has led to, or articles or interviews or something that has led to Neil Gaiman, especially centering angels uh, and fallen angels at the center of his stories, love to know and hear and read more about that. So please share. Yeah. The two like assassins in this story, mm-hmm. there's, um, it's, it's Mr. Krupp and Mr. Vandemar who, you know, I enjoy, they're very reminiscent of characters from a lot of different things, like the two angels in Good Omens. We, um, these are very different angels, but they're still like the repartee that they have, you know, the Mm -hmm. conversation, Mr. Croup, and this is, you know, not necessarily the smartest bulb in the box. And then Mr. Vandemar is much more, you know, like the boss kind of in charge, And they're deliciously kind of like evil and, you know, fun and campy comic relief, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it definitely, those two characters made me feel like this is very much in the British, like so much. So I, you know, because even back to like Shakespeare having the, like, you know, the bumbling, um, grave diggers or, you know, like, Mm -hmm. uh, that they're like an aside. Yeah. Um, and they were bumbling, but very competent. <laughs> yes. Bumbling, but competent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. A little bit like, um, now I can't think of their names. The two angels from um, Good Omens, where the characters probably are a lot more fleshed out. But um, yeah, I also is don't it Crowley and uh, can... Crowley and Az- uh, Azrafel? Aziraphale or yeah. Aziraphale yeah. Crowley. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's in that vein. And I, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I enjoyed, enjoyed those characters as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, again, it's like one of those things that's the complaints for me are not enough. They're like, I enjoyed pretty much all the little morsels that were set out, but I was still hungry after I ate them all, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. like yeah. I was promised a feast and I'm hungry, <laughs> but I liked the food but it wasn't right. enough, you know? And I, yeah. I kind of felt that way about all of this is like, even the vampire I was complaining about, right. if there was more to that story, I'm into it. It was interesting, but it just, uh, everything was just a little thin. I just, I'm curious that these characters are female because here comes, you know, like a vampire, it could have been a male, but yeah. she's seductive and she's seducing him. Yeah. She's very like complimentary to Richard and kind of like a seductive toward him. And mm-hmm. then she's literally sucking his life from him. And it's like, well, that's kind of an interesting visual image of this female sucking his life out of him, you know, right? Um, Perhaps this was the time of one of Neil's divorces, maybe. Not, to, not to make light of right, right. that heavy I don't concept. Know. But- <laughs> I, I, I'm intrigued yeah. when you see something like that, but yeah, it, that was interesting. I, yeah. I don't know about it being in the top 100 fantasy novels of all time. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, up, up there with some really heavy hitters. Yeah, like, for example, mm. you, you stick this next to Neuromancer. It's like, yeah, you know, oh, really? or even Game of Thrones is on there. And, right. Um, so many others. So many great mm-hmm. books. Yeah. That's okay. I want to pose that question too to listeners. I'm on a very yeah. listener friendly evening today. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. For those of you who have read Neverwhere, do you think it belongs on the top 100 best fantasy novels ever written or um, definitely not? Or you liked it, but no. What, what is your what is your take on this and where it belongs in this genre? Right. But then again, I could walk that back because it was I have to think about when it came out, 1996, and maybe mm-hmm. it was influential Again, some of the stories we've talked about where we're like, ooh, does it stand up? Does it hold up to, up to today's standards? But was it influential at the time in terms mm-hmm. of opening the door to more urban fantasy? I don't say I like, I don't really read urban fantasy. I don't know a lot about it. So that's a good question. So if any of our listeners read a lot of urban fantasy, do you see like Neil Gaiman's influence, you know, on urban fantasy genre from some of his early work? I think I think the the answer to that is probably yes. I think before that, like you said, you had Wizard of Oz, you had Alice in Wonderland, which were um, obviously set the stage for this too. But there, I don't feel like there was this huge selection then of books like that between kind of that time period. And so I don't have the answer either of whether it was influential. But I imagine that it opened the door or reminded people, hey, this is a, a category of fantasy that can be played with and, and thinking of what came out in 96, you know, you had like, my mind went to movies, but it was like the cheesiest, silliest stuff that had ever come out in the history of <laughs> entertainment. Was and so it, when was Buffy the vampire slayer? Because that's the, I think the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Early because, 2000s. You know, I was yeah. watching that in the nineties, Buffy the vampire yeah. slayer. Yeah, for sure. And then there was like Roswell, Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of American um, shows, yeah. but yeah, definitely. So it was a, it was a thing. And I, I, I feel like in the time of the nineties, everything was a little bit thin and not fleshed out and you just sort of went with it because it was entertaining. <laughs> right. Um, right. So yeah. I think perhaps in, in the time that it was written, it was, it fit. And the only reason that we're able to be so critical right now is because like film and television and everything else the field of writing has just become so much better and so much richer. And, and yeah, so, so now when we see it on this top 100 list, we're like, is it? Cause I think of all the books that came out in the last three years, there's already a hundred on there that are phenomenal. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's yeah. That list is getting longer and longer. Like it's just it, that hundred's not enough. Yeah. One question I had, this is one I wrote down, Robin, was what did you think of the ending? Oh, and yeah. so spoiler alert, if you don't want to know the end, stop listening or come back to us. But the end mm-hmm. was maybe, let's say, different than one might expect for the genre. Because in See, a hero's gonna... quest, the yeah. hero goes on a journey, learns something, and then comes back mm-hmm. changed. And then is back in their... Uh, like they might be in the original physical starting place, the same town or whatever, but everything about them has changed. And mm-hmm. so they're back in this, but this isn't exactly the end that happens here. No, but I actually was going to say the opposite. I was going to say, I felt the end was predictable <laughs> um, okay. just because I think the whole thing was about Richard. Like you said, his, the life he had wasn't a terrible life, but it, also wasn't I think for him he went to this other this other place I think some of his journey and his lessons were that you don't need so much in life to be happy and happiness and whatnot lies in places with people who see you 
not just the people who you're around and part of, but the people who actually see you for you. And I think being seen was a big theme of this. And so right. he was kind of, like I said, milk toast up in London above, and he goes down to London below and he's this warrior and he's this hero. And uh, maybe he's going to have like lice and shit on his shoes, but <laughs> perhaps that's enough, you know? And so I, I think it was he grew a lot and he had this journey, but it was more so realizing uh, what's important than just, I'm strong enough now to take on the world as it is. I think it was more, I'm strong enough now to know what I actually need and what people actually need and what friendship and community and all of that actually looks like. So I knew when he was making, I knew as soon as he was leaving London below that he would be back because I think I also have a little bit of that mindset when he, when he was at the end, he was sitting there and he was like at a bar drinking with some people. And he was like, if I go home with this girl tonight, I'm going to marry her in a year and we're going to have two kids and we're going to move to the suburbs. And that's a good life, but I don't want that. And I think I I related to that a bit, not obviously I don't need to go down to the sewers, (laughs) Um, but I (laughs) I understood that he was like, I know this is good. And I know this is enough. And I know this is what I've always wanted, but I want to do something different. And so I told you're supposed to have, yeah, told you're supposed to have and like, and what is civilized and proper. And so, yes, I liked the ending. Actually, I felt it was predictable, but I did like it. Yeah. What did you feel? So here's a question that I have for you and for listeners. Mm -hmm. Is this really about mental illness? Mm -hmm. Is Richard really mental? And the raised big reason why I started to see that because through most of it, I'm like, okay, this is a fun romp, you know, right. We have the British mm-hmm. humor, la, 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 la. And then he's fighting. The, there's these three bridges or three things they have to fight where the mm-hmm. monks are keeping this key. And mm-hmm. the third one, Richard has to go into. And he, while he's in that test, he is, it's like, they're saying you're the closest to reality. You've been this whole time. Mm-hmm. Like people from his life above are mm-hmm. telling him you're the closest to reality. You've been this whole time mm-hmm. and kind of like almost seducing him to stand in front of the moving, like a train's coming or, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. but that just started me thinking, like, is this all a metaphor for being quote crazy or like mental illness where the normals see it as you're being crazy, but you're not crazy. You're actually more on top of things than the normals are. I'm not mm-hmm. saying this very well. Cause I'm just kind of like thinking it as I say it, but mm-hmm. no, I, I understand. Uh, like the people I, that are the dreamers, the people like, like Dorothy, when she's in Oz, that's more real mm-hmm. Then when she's back in Kansas and like right. Alice, when she falls into the looking glass it, in, in that world, she's actually more, that's more real mm-hmm. than the, so I, maybe, maybe it's not crazy. Maybe it's the world of dreams. Like, as he's saying, the dream world is more real. We're mm-hmm. more authentic. We're more who we really are in that world than we are in the quote real world. And so that's where the answers are. Like, that's where we're courageous. And that's where I'm just making this up right now, but it kind of sounds like, (laughs) I think, I think that's definitely a thing. Cause when that, 
that scene happened and he's in this train station and all these voices are basically telling him to kill himself. Right. Um, there's definitely a shift in the story. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> right. And, it, but, and then at the end, even when he's back in London above and people can see him and his coworker is basically saying you had a mental break and you were on vacation. It, I don't know that I have an answer and perhaps I will in a few days. I just finished the story today. So some of these things haven't uh, fermented enough in my brain. So yeah, this might be a listener past question, but perhaps I just didn't want uh, my brain when I was reading it, didn't want to see this as a mental illness story. Not that I didn't want to see it as that, but like I wanted Richard to be part of this world where he felt like a hero. So yeah, I'm, I guess I don't have an answer for your question of was this, was mental illness the theme of this story? And was he Neil Gaiman actually telling a bigger picture, not of, not of just the people who fall through the cracks, but of mental illness and of, of that. Right. Mm. Or not mental illness per se, but maybe even just conceptually like the world of our mind of dreams of imagination, two possibilities. I wouldn't have really seen it all the way through until that scene. And then the end. And when you put that all together, it's kind of like, oh, is there like a meta piece to this story? It's like feeling a bit like fluff, but then is there something meta going on here? Yeah. Um, And perhaps that's how we're supposed to feel at the end is to also wonder as you finish this book, was this real or did it all happen in Richard's head? Right. And I think it did a good job of leaving me without an answer. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'm wrong in my snap judgment that it doesn't belong in the top 100 because yeah, maybe it does. Yeah, it does. I I think there was definitely, I think there was definitely a lot of good to it. And I, uh, yeah, I'm glad to have read it and I would recommend it to people with the caveat that if you're looking for a romping fleshed out epic fantasy, this isn't it, but, I, um, especially for people just getting into the genre, I think this would be a nice, a really good first fantasy book to read. Agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say if definitely, if you as an adult still like to read things or take in media, like Alice in Wonderland, you know, the wizard of Oz. And, and if those are kinds of stories that you always enjoyed, which I know I did, I, yeah. you know, when I was, um, I still like them. So, um, for sure, I guess I would just say probably the Neil Gaiman today, if you wrote mm-hmm. this, it would probably be like a, a more well-written story, yeah, more fleshed out, but also maybe it wouldn't have as much whimsy. I don't know, but, yeah. um, it's his first novel. So, yeah. you know, it kind of, that's a little bit of what's going on here. It's got some of the first novel itis stuff mm-hmm. going on, but the concepts mm-hmm. are there and the whimsy's there and the humor is there. Yeah. All of that. It's kind of quintessential Neil Gaiman, just an early version of totally. it. Totally. Yeah. Not as polished probably as later stuff. And you know what? This conversation is exactly why we do this because whenever I talk to you about these stories, it kind of gives me another, you know, like you can talk it through and work, work it, <laughs> work it out in your mind. And it's like, what did I just read? I'm not sure. So yeah. thank you for this conversation. Absolutely. Today. I, yeah. I, totally... I like this too, because I, I have my ideas when I read a story, but it helps me to think more or to see things I missed or yeah, I really enjoy to have a person I can like debrief on books with like what a cool (laughs) thing. (laughs) Right. And then our listeners help out by posting their own thoughts and questions, which we always love. So please keep doing that on social media. We definitely like 
hearing from you all and your thoughts on these stories. And so Robin, I think we're not sure exactly what we're doing next. So (laughs) listeners will have to watch social media as we were kind of like winging this, um, (laughs) this season a little bit as we kind of like reach for things that feel good sort of in the moment. Like we we pick up something and maybe one of us goes, Ooh, I'm not feeling this one. Um, so we switch, right. Because we don't want to come on here and just completely be negative about something. So if we're not feeling it, we kind of drop it and move on. So we'll see what else we have in store. And if you all have good ideas, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm open to reading anything that's science fiction, fantasy and, and exciting and good. We're open to suggestions. You know what we haven't done this season? We haven't had any guests. And so um, Ah. we'll probably finish the season. Then we'll probably take a little break this summer because we have, you know, shit going on. We got to take care of in our life. But I think next season, let's try to get some more author guests on the show because we miss having those. Yeah. I guess we had one author guest. Yeah. For Swamplandia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think this was our season to kind of get back into things, get our feet under us again. And then when season four comes out, it'll, uh, no guarantees, (laughs) but you know, it should be a little more organized and have that uh, traditional tipsy nerds feel to it. So uh, again, don't quote me on that, but I love our caveats. Remember, we're always, um, we're tipsy nerds. So, you know, you never know. Well, yeah. fun conversation, Robin. I yes. thanks for picking this one. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. It was and kind of lighthearted thanks- read we needed right now. A hundred percent. And thanks for listening, Tipsy Nerds. And until next time, cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.